Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for Wellbeing Wednesday podcast. This podcast is a forum where you can listen in as members or other stakeholders share successful strategies on well-being and resiliency in both their personal and professional lives. My name is Bailey Larson, Strategic Initiatives Associate, and I will be your host with my colleague, Anna Legredop, Senior Director of Clinical Guidelines and Quality Improvement for the ASHP's Wellbeing Wednesday podcast. With us today is Dr. Tina Shaw, Senior Advisor to the Office of the Surgeon General to offer insight on clinician burnout. Tina, thank you so much for joining Anna and I today to discuss this crucial issue facing the healthcare workforce. Thank you, excited to be here. Uh, Tina, thank you so much for joining us. And I, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. And um, looking back now that we've known each other since summer of 2017, and it's been so meaningful to see your impact on this work and then also see where your career has taken you. I want to introduce you to our listeners really quick, and then we'll get into our discussion. So for those of you listening, we have just such an impressive guest with us today. Dr. Tina Shaw is a physician scientist focused on redesigning healthcare so that clinicians can work at the top of their game. It sounds perfect for a healthcare professional. She is currently the senior advisor to the Surgeon General and principal of TNT Healthcare Enterprises, LLC. She advises healthcare companies and federal partners on clinician well-being, digital transformation, and health policy. For her background, Tina received her MD from Jefferson and her master's in public health from Harvard. She is board certified in internal medicine, pulmonary and critical care, and continues to actively practice on the front lines in the intensive care unit. So Tina, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Well, it's hard to know where to start, but I, I think I think would be would be great to just learn a little bit more about you as a healthcare clinician and and where your career has taken you so far to to where you are present day. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like most of the people that are listening in, I I was touched by burnout and it really shifted my career. And I'd like to say it shifted me to an even more interesting, um, I think, more exciting place than I probably would have been. And my story really starts with, like many, I mean, uh, we enter healthcare because we want to help people. And maybe we differentiate a little bit like stem cells, and we might go into pharmacy or medicine or, or what have you. But there's a theme. And so I remember I kind of sailed through residency, and I was pretty happy, even being an intern, you know, lowest on the totem pole, and then I hit fellowship and I relocated to a new city. I didn't have a community. The training was really rigorous. I was getting even more sleep deprived. Um, and m many of the things that we were doing were just, it was just so clunky. The technology was clunky. The, the way to work was inefficient. I remember for the first time, I was like spending time trying to find a wheelchair to get my patients and then wheel them to the Bronx suite. But at the same time, I was doing the most critical, the highest level of critical thinking I'd ever done in my life, trying to figure out what was wrong and teach the residents and also answer the questions my attending had. So I got burnt out on fellowship. So that was year four of my post-MD training. And it put me on a very different trajectory Two, wanting to, to really think through the fact that we're all elite athletes 
even though we might go to some different schools, but we're elite athletes known as pharmacists and pharmacy techs and doctors and nurses and therapists. And, um, you know, we train and train and then someone puts us on the track, which is the health system or healthcare setting that we work in. But then they put shackles on our legs and they tell us to run the race really fast. And no surprise, it's really hard to run. And my personal experience with getting burnt out because of how the healthcare workplace was fueled me to think through, well, how can I dedicate my life so that um, every elite athlete, myself included, and all my colleagues can actually run the race as fast as we want? Because we were trained to do a pretty, pretty cool, you know, series of jobs and works. And, and, you know, how do we redesign healthcare so that we could just do that? So that's, that was the theme of kind of what I've been following my North Star. And it's led me to go from starting out as a full-time clinician doing pulmonary critical care to starting a consulting business, trying to help hospitals address their burnout problems, which, you know, not shockingly helps make generate revenue because that's really what it's about, taking care of your people, to working um, for two presidents at the White House. And now more recently, getting to serve the country again as a senior advisor to the U.S. Surgeon General, who also cares about this topic of well-being. Well, can we talk a little bit more about that now Now that you are providing, serving in this role of senior advisor in the office of the Surgeon General? And I know when I learned that you had committed to going back to serve in that capacity, I was so glad to know that just just knowing you and knowing what you have done, that you were going to be then serving in that role. Um, so I'd love for you to share more about um, about what your role is and then also maybe even remind people what the Office of the Surgeon General strives to do and what some of their priorities are as well. Yeah, great question. So maybe I can kind of start backwards because honestly, I have to say I it's a really unique part of federal government. So Dr. Murthy, Dr. Vivek Murthy is our current Surgeon General. This was actually his second time being Surgeon General, and he was very effective before, but imagine how effective he's been now. And you may have already seen him on TV or heard him on NPR because he's one of our public authorities on COVID. So this office is the, the, the doctor is actually the nation's doctor and um, the Surgeon General is charged with keeping America healthy. So first, I just love that we have that in our country. And, you know, what does it translate to? And I think some of us might remember that some of the ways the Surgeon General does this work is through reports. Like back in the day, there was a report on tobacco and it kicked off so many different things. And more recently, the Surgeon General put out a report on misinformation. And we saw, um, you know, ironically or sorry, not ironically, conveniently or maybe not conveniently, Facebook, right, goes in to testify I mean, there's there's an aligning of things. So the Surgeon General has this unique role of looking at what does it take to keep America healthy and shedding light and galvanizing action to places that are, are taking us away from that goal. So as a primary communicator and um, the trusted source for science and health, that's what the office does. And uh, of course, it sits in health and human services, which means that it's sitting right next to um, entities that we may know, like CMS, Medicare and Medicaid, and other other aspects of the government that touch us down to our very core. So, for example, it also sits on Health and Human Services next to folks that work on the the usability criteria and what for our EHRs. So, really, um, I think the vantage point sitting in the office of the Surgeon General 
allows you to see what's happening policy-wise and influence policy in health and human services, and also liaise with the White House and with Congress. So I think um, I'm just so honored to be part of the team and to support Dr. Murthy. And what I, I've been brought in to do is take my lived experience and my policy and experience um, working in many of the same circles that you have, Anna, on well-being to now bring it up to the, you know, the topmost level in federal government. So I am primarily working on how do we promote clinician well-being or even more broadly, healthcare worker well-being, which goes to anyone that's working in healthcare from someone who's medically trained to someone who maybe is working food service in our hospitals and um, thinking about how do we sustain the workforce? Because right now things are all over the place. I mean, and I, I think in pharmacy, you're struggling with the same thing. How do you slow down the turnover across everything from pharmacy techs to support staff uh, to pharmacists at all the various levels of pharmacists? So it's a, it's a pretty exciting role, but I won't lie. Sometimes I worry about my own burnout risk. <laughs> I can imagine you're busy, but I, I appreciate you explaining that. There is that ripple effect for people to realize what what might start Within, within the offices of the Surgeon General and then really ripple, ripple out. I appreciate how this Office of the Surgeon General and this administration is really casting such a wide net for who they are focusing on. And the HRSA grants that just came out, you know, they identify the health workforce as not only students and residents and um, professionals and communities, but also public safety officers and um, employers of those individuals. So I think that's really, really important, and I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, and I, you know, I have to say kudos to ASHP because I believe you're one of the grantees from the. I think it was over a hundred million dollars that has been now released to drive to address burnout and actually promote well-being. So. Can I ask you a question? I don't know if that's allowed, but if it is, like, what are you guys going to do with the money? Thank you so much. We are really excited. We we did receive a $2.3 million grant aimed at reducing burnout and promoting mental health. Um, our proposal was obviously focusing on um, the nation's pharmacy and healthcare workforce with, you know, targeting the rural and underserved communities as well. So we feel really fortunate, as you and Anna discussed at the beginning, this Anna's been a part of this clinician well-being collaborative since 2017, and that's when ASHP started the commitment as well. So it's it's been a priority for ASHP, and I think we're excited that this money will allow us to really make some some change. We've we've done a lot of resource building and data collection and surveys, and with this money, I think we can really start you know, getting some of our evidence-based programs out there and other support systems for for those team players, just just like you said, that are working on with shackles on right now. Anything else you want to mention about the group? I know we could we could talk about it all day. So, no, well, thanks for thanks for mentioning that. And you're right. So the those HERSA grants, there were the 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 monies that were allocated or appropriated to HERSA to do the work would fund um, funded 10 awardees to provide sort of a more direct connection to mental health resources for those in the health workforce. There's also 34 grants that were given to support training programs. And that's the one that 
we feel so fortunate to have received and then one grant went, went to extend and create a technical assistance center. And I think thinking about the work that we've done over the last number of years, we've recognized that this is an all hands on deck approach that it requires a multi-pronged solution. And I, I think the vision behind what informed the grant and inspired the grant was recognizing that we need to do more than to really push out those local resources. So we're really excited to be part of that. Yeah, I, I am just so excited to see um, where your organization goes with this. And I, I remember I actually interviewed, I believe Anna, I might've interviewed you, but we published this paper saying, what are professional societies doing to advance well-being? And I don't mean to, I mean, I, I feel like this is just a love fest, but I have to, I have to toot ASHP's horn because you are, your organization is one of the ones that's a little bit closer to the forefront than many others. And so it, by no means are we, are we at the place we want to be, right? We all have a, a vision of healthcare and I'm happy to share mine of where our, where our healthcare, where healthcare in the U.S. should be. And we're not there, but without organizations like yours actually trying to fight all of the status quo, the drivers, the chronic drivers of burnout, we just, we wouldn't get that far. And there are many other specialties or professions that I think are, are struggling because they don't have leadership like yours. Even this podcast is incredible. So thank you for that. I appreciate that that memory. I do remember visiting with you about that a few years ago and um, Christina Martin was involved with it too. And I think what we heard back from you was really reinforcing because in some ways you never feel like you're doing enough because people are really struggling. And and that's really what our first reaction was when we got the grant was like, now we can do more. We want, we do want to do more. And the feedback that you and the, your colleagues that worked on that, it did provide, it was validation at least for that point in time that we can always do more, but we, we had at least gotten a good start. So thanks. So Tina, if I can ask as the senior advisor to the office of the Surgeon General, can you share some insight as to what you or maybe that office would view as success in terms of this grant and the other recipients? Yeah, absolutely. And this is where I think this is the silver lining of COVID, right? Because before COVID, many of us were burnt out. And I, I'll just speak to, to my profession, physicians. One out of two docs was burnt out. I think there is probably a very similar rate among hospital-based pharmacists. So we were already in trouble before. Now we're in COVID and we have one of the topmost leaders in the country saying that clinician well-being is a priority. In fact, it, it is something that the office is, is working on really, really hard right now, in addition to trying to pursue this through all of the COVID work and, and other work. But I want to share, I want to share some stuff that Dr. Murphy has said before, and then maybe I can add a little bit more context on a personal note. So I don't know if any of anyone listening in has ever heard Dr. Murphy speak about well-being, but he he has this way where he just describes like this he describes like this place you want to go to this utopia and it's a place where you don't feel lonely where there's actually empathy in the workplace it's this healing health system and so you know at first you hear these words and honestly if you're burnt out it's kind of hard to hear these words but but here's what he's describing and I wholeheartedly buy in. Can we imagine redesigning a healthcare system that was like that place we always wanted to work in where you had all the tools, you did the training, you maybe did your residency, and now you're in the field and you know exactly how to help your patients. And the technology is set up 
for your success, not your failures. You, you don't get alerts. You actually get reminders that are helpful to you to, you know, as a double check for work that you're doing. You don't have to think about billing and documentation. It actually is in the background. And so this is, this is like the vision of America where it's almost like that now the dog is wagging the tail rather than the tail wagging the dog. So, you know, from the office of the Surgeon General standpoint, we're seeking to put together a blueprint of how do we get to that vision of a healing healthcare system where not only are we better healers, but we actually are in a workplace that helps promote our own health and our safety and our well-being. And I don't mean well-being from do yoga, do meditation, as has happened to many of us, but I mean that well-being from your EHR actually works for you and the clinical decision support actually supports your decisions. <laughs> Not, um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to comment on what, what you all are experiencing with your technology, but I can tell you mine does not support my decision making. I have to like constantly fight it to try and make the right decision, right? So technology that helps us reducing all of the low value work. So I actually have time to connect with my colleagues and maybe say, Hey, can I like curbside you about something and have the space for that? So it's actually returning us back to relationship based care versus desktop medicine. EHR-based care. So that's that's kind of the vision. And please stay tuned because I think very shortly there's going to be kind of uh, really a laying out of this and a galvanizing even more than there's been from many people like Dr. Murthy to, uh, to really coordinate all of the well-being efforts across the country. That does sound like utopia, and but it sounds also achievable with the right conversations and the right people around the table for it. The things that you mentioned, you know, the, on the, the technology side and the friend versus foe approach to technology, is there anything more you can share about that? I know that that's, that really seems to be um, a passion of yours and something you have a lot of vision for in terms of how we can move forward. Yeah, absolutely. And prior to this role, I actually served as the, I oversaw virtual health at a large health system in Georgia. So I actually got to be in the weeds. I would spend some of my month doctoring and the rest of the month trying to figure out how to make tech work for humans. And that was really, really fun because also my colleagues, I think, yelled at me a lot because there were a lot of problems with the technology that we threw out um, in the beginning of the pandemic. But I want to frame something for folks. So there's like the vision, right, of we need to completely redesign the electronic medical record and, and also all that technology we use to connect to patients, whether it's telemedicine, um, using Fitbits, all the re remote patient monitoring tools. All those need to be redesigned so that they're more user-friendly for the patient and especially for the practitioners, right? Because we, we definitely don't have that second piece right now. So there's that long-term vision. But even short-term, there's so much we can do. So I would just say this. It's really, really hard because I think often compliance and this fear of being sued or fear of being dinged somehow limits us, right? And we all know this as frontliners. But if we can pull in those folks that look, that are the heads of compliance or the heads of IT, and we can pull them down to our level of when we're on shift and we're sitting in that room with no windows and looking through orders and trying to catch that one dangerous two dangerous, three dangerous orders, right, that, that occur by mistake. That's a point that still is fixable today. So even if, and I'm going to tell you some stuff that's happening in government, but even if there were no regulatory changes, I personally believe that 40% of the problem is regulatory. 
And 60% of the problem is how we interpret the regs. So whoever is listening who's an extrovert, it's time to get some more besties. And they better be besties in compliance and legal and IT because once you do that, you're going to change your work life and your colleagues' work life. And I think we have a role, even if we're not formally in leadership. So I'll just tell you my experience when we started trying to, we, we basically turned on telemedicine overnight in all of our 260 plus clinics at Wallstar. And we didn't give our colleagues anything. We had no funding for more tablets. We had no cameras. We just said like, okay, we got to start doing it. And what it took was forming this brain trust with compliance, billing, coding, and IT. And we came up with a grid of what do you have to put in your progress note and what CPT code do you have to drop? And so we actually gave physicians and their care teams need to know information. And on the back end, we took some of that I don't know, take up your brain space, billing related um, stuff that we all kind of do or documentation stuff. And we took it out of the, the doctor's hands. And I'm just wondering, like, what could what could that look like for pharmacy? Because I think there's room. So there's that piece. But I'm also really excited to say, and this is public knowledge. So I wish I was giving insider secrets, but, you know, it's already out. The government recognizes that we need to allow innovation in. And so they're trying to look at ways to get those apps that glom onto our electronic health record and then show us those beautiful visuals that put all of our clinical data together in a way that actually makes sense. They're looking at ways to change the landscape so that those startups can come in a little bit more easily. So they're trying to change the regulations around that marketplace. And I think that's huge. So if you're interested, I would Google the office of the national coordinator and look at, look at some of what they've been saying about APIs because they're really trying to make it easier for new technology and new startups to come in. And I think that's huge. And they're also trying to set, and they've pushed out criteria. And this is actually what I love. But as you know, like there's a big step between guidelines and it actually affecting us in practice. So we all acknowledge that. But there are guidelines that have come out that say technology actually needs to work for us pharmacists or us nurses. And I don't know, that kind of gives me a sense of relief. Like someone has acknowledged that the technology is terrible and it's trying to come up with the right user experience for us. So there's already things are in place um, and it's now the next connection point with all of the technology companies to really get them to incorporate what we go through um, and to partner with pharmacy upfront to design this. So I think short term, you know, what can you do? What can we do in our local institution? Can we have a conversation? Can we bring our chief compliance officer down for a half day and have her just work with us side to side to see what it's like? And then there's, you know, the federal government saying, we know this is a problem. We need, we can't solve it, but we, we know there are startups that can solve things and can we bring them in? And so for me, and Anna, you know this, I, I was actually pivoting before I took this um, surgeon general role and I will be pivoting in a few months back to the, um, the health tech sector, but that's, it holds so much promise, right? And you can think about the millions and billions of dollars that are invested by venture capital and private equity. And I think that could make our lives easier. So I have a lot of hope. And this is about the public and private sector working together. So, I mean, I think I need to get off my soapbox now, so I'll turn it back to you. But I'm just very excited about can tech work better for humans? And I think the answer is yes. I think it's exciting to hear that there's hope and it's exciting to know that those there's something in the works that's making those cogs that have maybe otherwise been stuck finally start to turn together whether it's those guidelines or 
the ability for more of that innovation and things like that. I think that's really exciting. And I so appreciate how you created the picture of saying, because we hear from members that regulate regulatory burden is is an issue, but then really looking at it, like, are we over-interpreting that because we're also always overachievers. We always want to do the right thing and we definitely want to prevent worst case scenario, but are we then sub-optimizing ourselves being in that, you know, that over-regulating ourselves versus really what's out there. So, and we, we do have a section of members that are very interested in informatics. So I'm sure they're, they'll be very excited to hear the hope from you. And then not only hope, but knowing that there's momentum moving forward. Yeah. Yeah, that's exciting. And I'm wondering if um, that section of really savvy informatics folks in, in your organization wants to rebrand themselves as de-implementationists, because that's what it's about, right? And like, imagine if we armed up every, um, per every member in the organization, they all got trained on how to advocate to de-implement stuff, because there is already loads of research, although I'm not familiar with some of the nuances um, across the, across pharmacy, but I can think of many in, in my daily workflows that have been proven that while it's a safety measure, it's been implemented in a way that increases my cognitive load and chops up my day, right? You know, I'm getting paged, I'm getting alerts, blah, blah, blah. So I actually become, I, I have the, the higher risk to, to make a medical error and make a mistake. So this is maybe, you know, maybe we're ushering in in the post-pandemic era, maybe it's a de-implementation era. And just like how we're going hiking, like we've got to go back to nature you know, we got to put tech on the side, right? It's got to be in the background. And I think it'd be interesting if um, if we do that together. I love that, Tina. So much to react to. And I think pharmacy does have its the set of challenges like you spoke to with other healthcare professionals, including EHRs, production, implementing additional services, but then the technology doesn't support it. Those are things that we're hearing. Another thing that we are focusing on um, in 2022 is just working on um, cold chain and cold chain technology because that's been a huge thing in hospitals and, and health systems of the technology there and making sure that the drugs just make it to where they're supposed to be and are efficient and you know less waste and ultimately getting to the patient you know under optimal conditions. We just have a few minutes left. Is there anything else about your experience or commitment or involvement addressing clinician burnout that you want to speak to before we wrap up? Well, one thing that struck me is there are a lot of folks that are working on this, uh, myself included, and, and same with both of you and many listening in. And just on that theme of thinking about how do we make things simpler, because the, the truth is we're, we're an overregulated industry. All of us are overachievers and the ones that aren't, that's probably because they're burnt out. And so like to save themselves, they've tried to change their expectations, but we're generally a work harder culture to solve problems rather than recognize that we might need to go simpler. And I think there's a role for really thinking, how can we go simple right now? And I wanted to share something that's actually coming out next week. So this is the week of January 31st. I'm working with a group, and this is not in my my professional capacity, but a personal capacity. And this is a group that's coming up with a top five list of what can health systems actually do to support their healthcare workforce. So that includes pharmacists, that includes doctors, it, it's everyone that's in the healthcare at the hospital setting. 
And that goes back to that mindset of keep it simple, stupid, right? Like what are the five top lines of, look, you only have a little bit of time. We all recognize our hospital leadership is burnt out too. And what could, what could they actually do to help us? So this list is coming out next week and it's super exciting. And like, can we adopt that mindset? So now we have, you know, let's go from the macro hospital level. Let's go to the pharmacy service line. And like, what can we do to keep it simple, stupid? Is there like a way to quickly come up with that top five list? And, and then, and then of course, because we're perfectionists and we like to compete, like who can compete faster to de-implement stuff according to that list? So this is like the time where if you're, you know, I don't want to say this is just about millennials or Gen Zs. It's really about any generation. But if you've always wanted to do something, I think this is the time, you know, like it's, it's about being courageous and bold. And like, can you come up with a simple message and then just try and do it when it comes to well-being? Yeah, so, I think that's the silver lining of COVID for sure is people are desperate for some change. Anna, any last thoughts before we wrap up? I know yesterday when we were working together, I think I think you said, should we just do the KISS method? And so we will continue to keep that top of mind. Well, right. And I, the, I will definitely share that, that resource with our members that you mentioned. We'll look for it. And it'll be also potentially a tool for what we plan to build out for operationalizing the, the grant that we received. So. Thanks for sharing that. Lots of really just incredible tips. I there are things that can be done, and like you said, it's 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 way beyond yoga or a free lunch. It's it is getting to the problem, and um, and you're offering some some very accessible and tangible ways to do that. Yeah, and if I can just say one more thing, just going back to just telling you what 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 it's like sitting in federal government. There is an incredible um, understanding that. What's happening with the public and how the public is harassing healthcare workers and how they're making it tough for us because we know there are preventable deaths or preventable morbidities. There is a, a very, very high level of awareness with that. And as you see, if you, if you like follow the Surgeon General, you'll see that he, like other senior leaders, they're not just focusing on burnout in the sense of And we're already, I hope we're already past this point. It's not about yoga, right? It's not about mental health, although we need to offer that stuff. It's about changing the way we get reimbursed, unlocking our time so we can actually like do our basic things like eat and drink water during shifts and then be, be rewarded and recognized for all the the work we do that actually helps patients. There's that, but there's even this focus that's even more macro. and, And that's what I love about working for this office. We're trying to tackle culture change from the public not even from ourselves as people that work in healthcare, but this whole thing about, you know, the misinformation around vaccinations and the moral distress we have, like knowing that we didn't need to take care of these patients, that's on the table too. So I'm sorry, I'm going on a tangent, but I was just, I want you to know there are people that really understand and they're trying really hard to address this. I was just pulling up. We, we just, our board of directors just recently revised our strategic plan and we do have a, a goal under, we have three pillars of our strategic plan. And one of them is specifically for patients. It's our patients and their care. And um, within that goal is where we house our commitment and goals, goals and goal and objectives for well-being resilience for the sake of patient care. And our leadership just and our members suggested that we add a new objective this year that talks about 
maintaining environments that are safe for staff and free of harassment, bullying, and intimidation. And that, wow. that really aligns with what you just said. So you're right. That's like the next piece of, of this. And, and not next. It's always been there, but it, it so belongs in these conversations. Well, kudos to the, like, the forward thinking of, of your leadership. I think that's incredible. And we, we know this, like, every time I'm on service, well, honestly, I'll just say I feel a little protected as a doctor because we don't typically get the same level of harassment, let's say, as our nursing colleagues. And I don't know um, what, how, how it is, the flavor it is for folks that are working in pharmacy, but it's so real and it's gotten so bad. It, can I just share with you the Joint Commission? changed something this year where they're starting to measure workplace violence. I think this is great. Uh, clearly, it's not enough, but that's another acknowledgement. Wow. It's really encouraging to hear all this, and I, I must feel like you have so much on your shoulder. These are, these are huge issues and topics that you're tackling fearlessly, so we really appreciate it. That's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Dr. Tina Shaw for joining Anna and I to discuss insight on clinician burnout, and much more. Join us here every month for more Wellbeing Wednesday podcasts. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.